If you could, uh, pull out your Bibles and open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. I have two pieces of technology that play a crucial role in my life. Uh, I have my phone and I have my laptop. I'm going to ask you, which of those do you think is more important, my phone or my my laptop? What do you think? That's the right answer. Thank you. That's good. uh, It is it is I, neither or both, I, however you want to consider it. Like, okay, so, so understand me on this. I can do almost anything on my phone that I can do on my laptop. I proved this to myself this morning because I meant to bring my laptop to church. I left my laptop at home and I had several things that I had to do. I was able to do all of those things on my phone, although it was horribly inconvenient for some of it, but I was able to do most of the stuff that I needed to do on my phone. And for what it's worth, I can do almost anything on my computer that I can do on my phone. I can't really make phone calls yet on my computer, but for the most part, I can do almost anything on my computer that I can do on my phone. But it's a really strange question to ask me which one of those is more important, right? Now, you may have an easy answer to that question, right? You, because you may have a phone and you may have a laptop and you may go, the obvious answer for me is my phone. But I'm talking about me and my life because the reality is with my phone and my laptop, I use them both for different purposes at different times even though they're very similar and both can basically do almost anything that the other can do. Their unique wiring makes them applicable for different situations. They're both important. I need both of them to fulfill my responsibilities. If one of them breaks down, I can use the other one as a crutch for like a week before I start going crazy and my life starts falling apart. Both of them are very useful to me. So I have no category for one of them being more important than the other one. Why talk about that? To illustrate a point, difference in role does not mean difference in value. Difference in role does not mean difference in value. Let's take this point a bit further with a little bit of theology. We believe in the Trinity, the Godhead, three in one. Three persons co-equal in their divinity, co-equal in their eternality. Each one fully God, each plays a different role, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit one God, and three persons. And as we read scripture, we discover that those three persons at different times are described as playing different kinds of roles, right? And for what it's worth, as you talk about three persons who play different kinds of roles, you better not talk about one of them as being more important than the other one. Right? Even though they have different roles, you cannot talk as one being more or less important. In fact, it's illogical to do so, and it's incompatible with Scripture. The moment that you talk about one of them, kind of one of the persons of the Godhead, being more important than another person of the Godhead, you actually start talking about something that is not God. Right? It doesn't work out that way. So when we speak of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we speak of difference among persons, But value doesn't even enter into the conversation, right? It doesn't even exist. So why, when we speak of difference of roles that men and women play, is it insisted that we are attributing more value to one over the other? That's the question that we are going to explore this morning. So we are continuing in a series called Reasons to be Skeptical. 
Uh, we're dealing with common objections to believing the Bible. We've talked about this idea of cultural mantras. Cultural mantras are repeatable, sacred phrases that feel true. So uh, we, we talked about these last week. Pastor Don came up here, and he talked about these cultural, cultural mantras. And what they do is that they actually, um, they make straw men out of the Bible. What do I mean by that? They take little words that the Bible says and little passages of scripture that the Bible says, these skeptics who employ these cultural mantras, and they take them and they twist them to say things that the Bible isn't actually saying, and then they take those little things that they've twisted and say, look, see how silly Christianity is? Right? See how silly it is to really believe the whole Bible. Surely you can't take the whole Bible seriously. And so uh, three weeks ago, we looked at how these cultural mantras do this with slavery. Two weeks ago, we looked at how they do this with the concept of God committing genocide. And last week, Pastor Don did a masterful job of helping us examine how uh, we do this in relationship to science. This week, we are in the final week of this series and we are addressing one final objection to believing scripture. The reason that is given is this. The Bible creates rules and systems that are oppressive to women. The Bible creates rules and systems that are oppressive to women. How do they say this, or why do they say this? Well, they say this, number one, because there is a history in our world of the oppression of women, right? Historically, men and churches and governments have twisted the words of scripture to lower the place of women, to excuse abuse, and to carry out that abuse, right? So people have misused scripture in order to oppress women. And then what you have is uh, you have had situations where even now we're hearing stories of women coming forward about abuse that they experience in the home, and, and men who read the words, uh, wives submit to your husbands, they tell these women who come forward about this abuse that oh, what you need to do is you just need to do a better job of submitting. And they refuse to address the, the, re, they refuse to address the abuser. So let me just say that there is no theological system that exists that permits believers in Jesus to be abusers. Right? It does not exist. Abuse is reprehensible and abusers need to be held accountable. But get this, we can't let how other people have twisted scripture convince us that the scriptures themselves are wrong, right? We need to come to the Bible on its terms. So that's the first reason they say this. They say, look at all the abuses that have been done with scripture. It must not be true. Uh, the second reason they say this is that there's the kind of this cultural reality. What they do is they read the standards of our current culture onto the Bible and say, because the Bible doesn't align with my standards, the Bible must be wrong. Because the Bible does have passages that say like this, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. The Bible says uh, something like this in a passage, if you take it completely out of context, a woman is to remain quiet in church. Uh, women should wear head coverings in church. Uh, women should learn quietly with all submissiveness. We see these passages happen, but recognize what's happening when uh, skeptics and these cultural mantras, uh, kind of what they're doing is they're picking and choosing portions of verses that sound out of step with what culture tells us is right. And so 
by that way, they're taking it out of context, they're twisting the scripture and convincing us or trying to convince us that the Bible can't be true because of these things. So what does our culture say? Our culture says, if a woman is not allowed to do anything that a man can do, that is oppression, right? That is uh, inequality, and as a result, men are using the Bible to oppress women. And then what they're doing is they're looking at the portions of verses, not considering them in context, and saying, look at how oppressive the Bible is. But remember, difference in role does not mean difference in value. And so at this point, it's worth saying, uh, some of what the Bible teaches is not going to immediately resonate with us, right? In fact, I might say some things this morning that you are inclined to disagree with, and I want you to know that I am trying my best as I stand up here to be faithful to what the Bible teaches. I'm thankful to be in a church that lets me uh, bring the word of God to bear on controversial issues that not all Bible-believing Christians would agree on, right? And then I want to talk about this, this element of faith, because faith, as we enter into these conversations, faith is that even when we don't feel it, we trust that what the Bible teaches is good, right? So we're going to deal with uh, this uh, kind of objection, this reason given to us this morning by asking a few questions, and these are kind of the questions that we've been asking as we go all along. We're going to ask, what does the Bible actually say about women? Then we're going to look at kind of the distinctions that God makes between the sexes. And then finally, we're going to consider the verses that seem problematic to us. So, what does the Bible say about women? I want to give you one big overarching idea as we step into this. In its context, the Bible was counterculturally pro woman. In its context, the Bible was counterculturally pro-woman. What do I mean by its context? I'm talking about in the context of ancient society, the things that were written in scripture about women were unusual and they went in favor of women, right? So, so the Bible was written to people who lived in the midst of societies that frequently, number one, diminished the role that women played in society, Number two, treated women as property. And number three, permitted the active abuse and oppression of women. That means that uh, the Bible, as it was written to people, these people were formed and shaped by the societies around them. And these are the things that those societies did. More often than not, men used their physical strength to maintain roles of power. And more often than not, that power was used to oppress vulnerable people. And among those vulnerable people were women. So what we find in the Bible then is kind of startling in comparison to that picture because it is people who lived in those kinds of societies who first heard these words, Genesis 1:27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. People living in the midst of, uh, women living in the midst of oppressive societies were the first ones to hear these words, you are created in the image of God. Right at the beginning of the creation narrative, the story that we are told is not that women are lesser or inferior or to be dominated, but rather male and female are both dignified, both bearing the image of God. And if you keep reading, you learn that God created woman because man was not good by himself, right? It is not good that man should be alone. And I apologize, my no nose is running 
like a faucet up here, so. It is not good that man should be alone. So what did God do? God said, I'm going to create a helper for you in carrying out your role. So what did God do? Well, he created that help, helper in uh, this role in being fruitful and multiplying and in having dominion. You're going to do these things. You're going to rule over creation. You're going to be fruitful and multiply, and you need a helper to do this, right? And the implication is, what we see is that man was created, and God, uh, God kind of gave man primacy of responsibility, but then brought woman along to help in that responsibility. So we see primacy of responsibility and help in that responsibility, but we do not see either ruling over the other, right? So, so far in the first two chapters, just to clarify this, number one, women bear God's image. Number two, women play an important role in bearing children. Number three, women help men in ruling over creation. And number four, men are actually in a really sad state without women, right? Because God looks at the man by himself and goes, it's not good. It's not good that man should be alone, right? So kind of the first piece of the story that scripture tells us is this. Women were created with dignity. That's the first piece of the story that scripture tells us. This is a message that stood in stark contrast to the experience of the first women who heard these words. And then, then what happened after that? Well, we have kind of told the same story every week, right? After creation, humanity fell, right? Uh, humanity, the, the world that we live in is now broken. We disobeyed God. We severed our relationship with God. God created us to rule creation in connection with him. But when we severed that relationship, we said, now thanks, we got it without you, Right? And so God pronounces curses over the man and over the woman and over the serpent who lied to them. I want to look at the curse to the woman because this is what it says in Genesis 3.16. It says, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. And then it says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So this is God saying, here's the result of severing creation from the creator. Number one, the significant role that you play in childbearing will be very painful. And number two, conflict will arise between men and women, and men will dominate women. This is a result of the brokenness of the world. These things are the pain of falling from the, creations, or the creator's intention. So imagine the women who heard this for the first time. They hear for the first time that they are created in the image of God. They hear for the first time that they are created with dignity, that they were given responsibility to rule over creation alongside the man. And suddenly, when they hear this curse, things come together for them. Right? They hear, oh, this pain that we experience in childbirth. This oppression that we experience at the hands of men, it's because of sin. But that's not who we were made to be. We're image bearers. We're meant to be dignified. That's what they hear. And so as a matter of confirming that dignity, let's just remember the curse that God gave to, that God gave to the serpent in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, not the man's offspring, 
but her offspring, right? She is going to play a significant role, and this offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So God curses the serpent and says, hey serpent, guess what? This broken world, it's not going to be like this forever because I am sending a savior and that savior is going to be her offspring and you won't stand a chance. Right? That's the creation story told to women who frequently had a diminished role in society, were treated as property, and were actively abused and oppressed. And so from that point, what does God do? He starts building a nation of people, people who have been shaped by these broken societies. He calls out Abraham from a broken society, and then Abraham has descendants, and then he goes into Egypt, and he saves them from a broken society, and he comes along and he gives the law. He gives the law to this nation that he's trying to create. And what's interesting about the law, the second thing that we see in the story of Scripture is that women were given unique legal protections, right? He creates law, and that law protects women when no other nations at the time were interested in protecting women, right? We don't have time to kind of get into the nitty-gritty of Old Testament law, but suffice it to say, Mosaic law protected women and children in a way that the world had never seen before, right? This included... uh, putting daughters in inheritance law, that was unheard of. You don't think of daughters in inheritance law in any other nation, but that was included. Uh, That uh, the mother was to be honored equally alongside the father. Children, not honor your parents, not honor your father. Children, honor your mother and father, right? And then you see specific protections given for widows. These are things that the Old Testament law took into account that no other law of the day took into account. The third piece of the story that scripture tells is that women played key roles in Israel's history. The beginning of the book of Exodus, we see these women, uh, women Shipra and Pua. They are Hebrew midwives. And uh, what they do is they keep uh, basically Israelite society in the midst of the land of Egypt thriving because Pharaoh had given this command to kill all the male babies that are born. And Shipra and Pua, they made up this little kind of white lie about the things that happened in order to protect those babies and to ensure that they couldn't be killed, right? So, uh, so we hear the story of them. Then we, we read the story of Rahab, a prostitute in uh, the city of Jericho. And what does she do? She provides hospitality to the Hebrew spies who comes through. She recognizes the greatness of God. And because she provi- provides protection for them, uh, then God saves her and her family. And then if you read history, uh, Rahab is one of the ancestors of King David, who is one of the ancestors of Jesus, who was the Messiah that was to be born. Right? And then uh, you uh, read the story in the book of Judges of Deborah and Jael. What you have is uh, that God had assigned the role of judge to Barak, but Barak was uh, failing in his role as a judge. And so he comes to Deborah, and Deborah essentially becomes the judge and has to kind of take on his role because he can't handle it by himself. And then, uh, so then what God says to Barak is, you know, you're going to go to war against these other people, but... I'm going to give your glory to a woman you've never heard of. And she's actually going to take care of finally defeating that army that's against you. And so we read the story of Jael, this woman that Barak has never heard of, comes and drives a tent peg through the skull of the leader of this other army. Right? So that's, uh, that's an interesting story of the role that women play. You read the books of Ruth 
and Esther, stories of faithful women who, who just persevered in faithfulness to God. And then you kind of get the kind of the culmination of uh, the Old Testament, the Solomon, King Solomon. God comes to him and says, Solomon, I'll give you anything you want. Solomon says, okay, God, well, you know, I would like to have gold and that kind of stuff, but you know what I really want is I want wisdom. And so Solomon writes the book of Proverbs, which is kind of the crowning achievement of this wisdom that he has gained. And in the entire book, he kind of personifies wisdom. And all the way through, wisdom is personified as a woman. And then the book ends with Proverbs 31, right? This kind of a uh, high proclamation of what a good woman is. And so just, uh, we're going to read a few verses from there. Proverbs 31, 10 through 30. An excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. Verses 16 and 17. She considers a field and buys it. She's engaging in the exchange of property, right? With the fruit of her hand, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And we're not even in the New Testament yet, right? In this final kind of piece of Israelite history, we see Mary. I just want to, uh, we have a picture for you. I want you to consider this picture with me. Mary is called highly favored by God. You have Mary and Eve in this picture. And she's given a promise that she will bear God's son. She will bear the Messiah. And she's given that promise after Eve got to hear the promise that through her line, even though she experienced the brokenness of her own sinful decisions, that uh, through her line would, there would be a Savior who would come. And then finally, that hopeful promise gets to come true in Mary. Finally, we see that coming true. And Mary gets to be called the bearer of God. So that's that, and the Bible continues to tell us a story about women where we see Jesus. Jesus uplifts and dignifies women. Right? You have the Samaritan woman at the well. He wasn't supposed to be talking to any women, right? Culturally, it's just kind of a big no-no for a man to talk to a woman, but Jesus doesn't care. He goes and he talks to women. You have uh, the inclusion of Mary Magdalene and the, the kind of significant role that she played in his ministry. Uh, you have the way that Jesus interacts with people that others would consider disreputable, uh, other women that people would consider disreputable. You have the woman who comes and washes Jesus' feet with her tears and he lets her do that. He doesn't send her away. You have the woman who anoints Jesus with perfume. He doesn't send her away. He lets her do that. He, he has this space for women that no other man in society Society had space for. And then finally, you see that women played key roles in the early church. Do you know that the first people to proclaim the good news of Jesus' resurrection were women? They witnessed it, and do you know what happened? The men that they went and told didn't listen to them, right? But here come the first evangelists to tell the truth about the fact that Jesus is risen. And then uh, from there, you see women regularly prophesying and praying in the early church. You have the Philippian church that meets in Lydia's house, 
which tells us that, Lydia, well, Lydia is, first of all, a businesswoman who became a key leader in that church. And then uh, in Romans 16, if you just read the number of greetings that are given, and the number of them are given to women who are playing significant roles in the active ministry of the church. And let's be, be clear, like, all of this was taking place in a society that still very much diminished the role of women, treated women as property, and abused and oppressed women. But that's not the story that God tells. Women are barriers of hope. Women are dignified. Women can be redeemed by Jesus and given promise of new life. Women can be empowered by the Spirit of God for the work of ministry. Women can speak the gospel to people. And so I want you to hear this. If you are a woman in this church, do not begin to give credence to the message that your value is diminished because of what the Bible says about women. You are gifted and dignified. Jesus calls you his treasured possession. You are worthy of high honor. You have roles to play in leadership in the kingdom, and you are vital in God's plan of restoring all things. Women, God highly values you. Okay, so then, what do we make of the differences? Because there are differences. Okay, so just to make this clear, God has some different purposes for men and women. God has some different purposes for men and women. Why do I put some in parentheses? Because overwhelmingly, there's a lot of, like, we can do almost the same things that the other can do. Like, you know, there's a lot of overlap in the abilities that were given, but there is some difference that is created and instituted. So uh, what does this difference look like? Well, first of all, we see that God designed men and women differently. So Genesis 2.22, Adam uh, sees uh, Eve is created out of uh, his rib, and he's looking at her, and he says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called Isha. Isha. It's like just beautiful, because she was taken out of man, ish. So everybody repeat after me, go, ish. Very good. And then, and then go, isha. That's exactly right. The word ish means strong, means sturdy. It's talking about the form of man, and the word isha means soft, delicate, right? That's the difference that's created here. So, uh, so how is this difference kind of intensified? This is displayed in creation, but um, men have higher levels of testosterone and are typically, now typically is an important word here, typically are more aggressive and physically larger than women. Women have high levels of estrogen and typically have greater levels of empathy and tenderness and are physically smaller than men. That is kind of, I mean, it's weird that I have to feel nervous about saying those words up here, but I do kind of feel nervous about emphasizing that. Uh, the word typical is very important. So for what it's worth, I was a boy who even though I valued strength, I definitely had a more sensitive and tender side, right? So this is why we're identifying kind of typical ways of seeing things. I still love being a man. I still see being a man as a valuable thing, even though I was outside of typical, typical in that particular regard, right? But it's clear that God created us with physical, biological differences. 
Number two, God's difference in design indicates some difference in function. Right, so it would seem that men were equipped to be protectors and providers in both kind of violent cultures and agrarian cultures. Does this mean that women could not protect and provide? Everybody say no. It does not mean that, but it means that like kind of primacy of responsibility for protection and provision was given to men. It just means that men were well suited to fill that role. Women are designed physically for childbearing and child rearing and seem to be well suited to provide nurture and care, right? So, okay, so those, those are some differences. And again, saying that, like, it feels strange that I should be nervous, but uh, it just happens. So then finally, uh, God reinforces the difference in function between men and women with his word. Right, so first of all, he values maintaining the distinction between men and women, right? So uh, 1 Corinthians 11 kind of illustrates this principle for us. This is what it says in verses four and five. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. This is, I'm just following scripture here, y'all. I took it all off. No, no hair at all. I'm just following the rules. Uh, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. So I can't get into all the kind of cultural details here, but this kind of illustrates the points for us. There are certain cultural markers for men and certain cultural markers for women. And it is a good thing for men and women to maintain those cultural markers, those cultural differences, right? You don't want men doing what women do and looking like women, and you don't want women doing what men would do and looking like men, right? So other places in Scripture show that God wants his people to maintain the difference, right? That there, there are markers of difference, and those markers of difference do matter to some extent. And then on top of that, in Scripture, we see that uh, God maintains difference in gender by making distinctions in the home. And he maintains difference in gender by distinguishing roles in the church. So almost all of the controversy surrounding women comes from what the apostles in the New Testament say. And that's kind of where we're going to turn our attention to now. So remember, difference difference in role does not mean difference in value. So the first kind of uh, passage I want us to look at is 1 Corinthians 11.3. It says this, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. I want you to notice three things for verse three. Number one, Jesus is not less equal, less valuable, less dignified, or less honored because he is, because his head is God the Father. But in fact, God the Father glorifies Jesus, lifts him up. The problem is not with the system, but the problem is with us as we evaluate the system, right? Number two, spiritual responsibility is only a marriage thing. This is what uh, God is talking about. God is instituting the man with spiritual responsibility over his family just by saying that the head of Christ is the Father, right? So spiritual responsibility, though, it it only relates to marriage, meaning that random men do not have spiritual headship or responsibility over women in general. 
In fact, God has kind of uh, specified, specified a chain of command as it pertains to spiritual responsibility. So first of all, you have Jesus. Jesus is our ultimate head for men and women, both. And then you have kind of uh, the other thing that's specified. You have elders who are, uh, have spiritual responsibility over the care of the church, shepherding the souls in their church. And then you see parents given spiritual responsibility over their children, moms and dads for shepherding the souls of their kids. And then finally, we see that husbands have spiritual responsibility responsibility for shepherding the souls of their wives, right? That's the kind of idea that is presented in 1 Corinthians 11. Finally, uh, number three, marriage and its roles were created to mirror the Godhead, right? God designed marriage to mirror him in some way. Okay, so that's one passage. Another passage to deal with. Uh, Ephesians 5, 24 and 25. It says, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. For anyone who thinks that the Bible vesting men in marriage with spiritual authority naturally creates an abusive relationship, You just have to revisit the expectations for men in this verse. As Christ loved the church is a high bar. Right, so I just want to make something really clear. Any abusive man is no man at all. Real men sacrifice for the good of their wives. Real men set aside their preferences for the sake of their wives. Real men are servants of their wives like Christ was a servant of all of us because women are that valuable. So let me just say that if there is abuse taking place among any of the people who call this church home, that is the full intention of our elders to number one, hold abusers accountable and number two, get the abused to safety. Just gonna throw that out there as a general kind of awareness of how we see things here. Okay, number three, 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 14. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Verse 12, it says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So here's what we know. Whatever Paul is referring to here is relevant in some way for all churches in all time because he rooted it not just in kind of one instance in the middle of time, but he rooted it in creation, right? He did something in talking about creation. So whatever he's referring to is relevant for all churches in all time because he rooted it in creation. Number two, if we look at other places in the New Testament, we see women praying and prophesying in the gatherings of the church. So being quiet here has to be referring to something specific, right? It's not a general application for all places and all time. It has to be referring to something specific. Number three, the woman is told to be quiet with regard to teaching and exercising spiritual authority over men, which are specifically roles that are designated for elders in the church. Right, so this means that at our church, the biblical role of elder will only be filled by men because the elders oversee the teaching and the doctrine of the church. That's our responsibility. And that also means that women 
who are gifted and skilled can serve in any other role in the church besides the role of elder. Okay, First uh, Peter 3, verse 7. This is uh, the final kind of issue to deal with. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. It says weaker vessel here, and this is a challenge for us, right? Weaker is simply referring to the fact the vast majority of women are physically weaker than men, right? And in a violent and dangerous world, those who are weaker need to be protected, right? So the apostles clearly believed, as we look at kind of the culmination of this, the apostles clearly believed that part of the role that God has assigned for men is to in some way bear spiritual responsibility for both the church as elders and their families as dads and husbands. So kind of let me summarize this. Number one, God highly values men and women, women and men. Number two, God gave women and men some different roles. And number three, God's heart is for us to embrace the differences. The differences are good, and he would not put them there if they were not good. Okay, so what? So what? The ministry of this church thrives because of both men and women. I personally, for what it's worth, have been shaped and impacted by the preaching of men and women. I personally have worked alongside men and women who have both called me on my sin and called me to something higher and encouraged me to be more faithful. We have a leadership team, actually, in this church that is comprised of both men and women. We have elders, but then those elders also participate in a broader leadership team, and that team is meeting regularly to discover how to move this church into the future. That is a team comprised of both men and women. If we lose the voice and the gifting and the temperaments of women at the table, then we lose the future of the church. I just want to make that very clear. Number two. And these get into more kind of the broader ideas of the whole series that we've been going through. Number two, are we dealing with a searching skeptic or are we dealing with a concluded skeptic? Searching skeptics are genuinely open to considering multiple perspectives. They are open to hearing about your own story. And for what it's worth, women, you have the best apologetic against this uh, reason that is raised this kind of skepticism that is raised, because you have the ability to say, as I interact with God, I do not interact with a God who oppresses me. I interact with a God who values me. And as I read the Bible, I see a Bible that that values the role that I am to play and calls me important and highly valued and loved by God, right? You, You have the best, your experience is the best apologetic against this issue that is raised, right? So, so, uh, there are Open, searching skeptics are open to hearing about your story. They're open to considering evidence that they hadn't previously considered. And so if that's the kind of person that you're talking to, ask questions, let them ask questions, keep building the relationship, keep investing, and then ask if, like as you go, are you seeing how this can make sense? Like how it doesn't just have to be this framework that you are given by our current culture, how this actually can work, right? So, uh, The difference, though, is when we're dealing with concluded skeptics, interestingly, concluded skeptics are usually only interested in the argument, right? They want to stump you. 
They, the, they probably won't be persuaded. Right? So you can ask questions. And actually, sometimes the skepticism comes from a place of hurt. And maybe you can ask questions and dig down into where that hurt is. But at the end of the day, it might just be like not worth the energy to engage the conversation. Maybe you need to step away from the conversation and you just need to pray for them. Right? So that's just an, an awareness to have. And then finally, as we end this series, I want to encourage you. God's word is trustworthy. So I want to ask you the question, what will it take for you to believe? We've been spending the last 10 weeks talking entirely about the Bible. Issues that are raised against the Bible, how the Bible is trustworthy, how the Bible was put together and the pieces that were involved in it. And it has been Don's goal and it's been my goal to show you that despite what culture might say, the Bible is trustworthy and the Bible is true. Right, so, so you might be here this morning and you might still be figuring out what it would take and whether or not you really believe. I wanna ask you to consider and, and to honestly evaluate the question, what will it take for me to trust him? What, like, maybe he doesn't meet all of your standards. Maybe God doesn't meet your expectations or the expectations of the current culture. Maybe there are some ways in which God seems like he is in the wrong to you. What's the point? Like, the point is where you say, like, where, where do you get to the point where you say, I believe? And when you and I disagree, you win. What's it gonna take for you to get there? I'd encourage you, like, Maybe today, as you have been hearing us talk about the Bible, I don't know what kind of is you're holding out, but maybe today could be the day of salvation for you, where you, uh, you are willing to say, I, I know I have this kind of line, but you're always going to have to take some step of faith. God is not going to figure out everything for you. So where is the point where you say, okay, now I'm willing to take the step of faith? Maybe today is the, the day of salvation for you, because God is good. God sent his son Jesus to earth to be with sinful men and sinful women and to die as a sacrifice for sinful men and sinful women and to rise from the dead in order to save sinful men and sinful women and welcome them to himself. So would you trust him today? Would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, I am grateful for your word. Lord, and I recognize that your word is all the time at, at odds with various things in this world that we live in. And I recognize even the discomfort that that makes me feel sometimes. The discomfort that I have in even stating uh, clearly what it seems that your word is saying. But uh, Lord, I ask for myself that you would ground me in a greater trust in your word and that you would ground this church in a greater trust in your word. Lord, that we, yes, we'll see things that are at odds with how we believe they should be, but that you would teach us what the attitude of surrender is, that when you and I disagree, you win. Lord, shape our hearts in this way. Shape us to be a people who see things in this way. I thank you for the value that you have placed on women. I thank you for the women in this church. 
who have spoken words of encouragement to me, who have uh, called me to account for some of my own sin. Lord, I I am grateful for the women in this church who have uh, advanced the ministry of the kingdom in significant ways. Lord, I'm thankful for the way that your word upholds the dignity and the value of women. Lord, let us be convinced of that value and let us always uphold it in our own actions. And Lord, uh, finally, as we transition to communion, I am grateful that you gave up your life for both men and women that we might be saved. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.